Sure to appreciate you being here this evening. Join with me in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is we're looking at some of the neglected books of the New Testament. Um, this addresses, and actually beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1, uh, this text will address false teaching and false prophets, uh, which is a very significant uh, teaching in the New Testament. Some of the longest passages and sustained subjects in the New Testament are about false teachers and false um, doctrine and, and theology and teaching. Um, if, if that's the case, then we should probably give a good proportion of our time to considering these kinds of things. Uh, as we look towards uh, doing missions in Takana, Guatemala, I'm concerned about the doctrine and theology there. Uh, there is a church there, so-called, that does not believe in the Trinity. And they're pretty energetic about it. Uh, there's another church there that is quite legalistic in its uh, teaching. It's more concerned with protesting some of the practices of the surrounding uh, world and culture there instead of announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. And then there is an awful lot of ceremonialism and formalism uh, that comes as a substitute for faith in Jesus Christ uh, that is announced there. And much of that is mixed with ancient uh, pagan Mayan religion as well. So I'm concerned about there. I'm concerned about Athens as well. Very concerned about some of the pop Christianity that uh, we find amongst us. Some of it helpful, some of it not so helpful. I'm concerned uh, for freshmen entering into college that might happen to get into a classroom with a um, uh, rather hostile professor that's hostile to the Christian faith. Thank God for those who are not. We've got some really good profs there, some in our church, in fact, and I'm real grateful for the ministry they have there. But there are some, and we've seen some, uh, that have run into a buzzsaw uh, of someone that's not handling the information very well and undermines their faith. I'm also concerned uh, what Peter's concerned with here as well. Peter is not just concerned about false teaching and false doctrine and false teachers outside the church. You're going to read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he's concerned about it inside the church. It's what he's concerned about. Uh, Shane Pruitt, who directs evangelism for Southern Baptist of Texas, has written a book recently entitled Nine Lies That Christians Believe. And uh, I want to list just about seven of them tonight real quickly that I think can be a great uh, help to us in understanding how sometimes it's not just those outside, but inside the church that might be vulnerable to some of these things. One happens to be, God won't give me more than I can handle. I don't know about you, but I've been walking with God long enough to know that everything he gives me is more than I can handle. How about you? Um, makes me desperate. Makes me seek him. But second... Uh, worship is to give me a blessing. That's what worship exists for. I'm to be blessed by it. Now, we are blessed by it, but that's a byproduct and should never, ever be a pursuit. Worship is to bless God. Um, there, then, third, God just wants me to be happy. And so people pursue happiness and pursue joy. And again, it's like satisfaction in worship. Uh, it may be a, a good byproduct, but it's a terrible pursuit. It actually becomes a taskmaster if that's what we do. Uh, fourth, I could never forgive that person. There's no way. Uh, number five, follow your heart. It's okay if you're a Disney princess, but um, serious follower of Christ, it's going to fail you. Number six, he or she will never change. Never change. And then number seven, just believe in yourself. Um, 
These are some things that have circulated in many different places uh, throughout the Christian church, sometimes in a naive way, but nevertheless, if they become a serious part of the makeup of the beliefs of a Christian person, they're going to find themselves distracted from genuine Christianity. And I could go on and list some others. But Peter addresses these things, and the first thing he addresses is the remedy for false teaching. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says something that none of the other world religions can say. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. All the other world religions got started in private with a so-called commissioning from God, whether on a Korean hillside in the case of the Unification Church or a private cave in the case of Islam or private uh, bedroom with an angelic visit in the case of Mormonism. Uh, the, the, most of these faiths have got a very powerful uh, root and source. Uh, and some may even conclude that the root of these is supernatural. But as I've told you before, not everything supernatural comes from God. It's entirely possible for the enemy to counterfeit a powerful movement. In fact, Paul will warn the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of a different gospel, a different Jesus, and a different Holy Spirit. And so it's entirely possible for the enemy to counterfeit every one of these and to convince those who are not knowledgeable of the word and sensitive to the truth of the uh, error of, uh, or convince them that error is entirely true. So the Christian faith, however, did start with eyewitnesses. Jesus got his commissioning not in a private cave, a private bedroom, or a private prayer meeting on a Korean hillside. Instead, Jesus got his commissioning in public in the presence of many witnesses. And so whether it happens to be his baptism where all Jerusalem and Judea were present in Matthew chapter 3, or whether it happens to be the Mount of Transfiguration, the experience mentioned here in 2 Peter with Peter, James, and John, or the resurrection appearances of which there were 10, as few as one, as many as 500, Jesus was commissioned in public in the presence of many witnesses. And so you could round them up, uh, depose them in a deposition, and use their testimony as uh, evidence for the reality of Christ. And this is what we find here. He says in verse 17, For we received from God the Father, uh, he received from God the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice in the presence of many eyewitnesses. Only Jesus has eyewitnesses and earwitnesses in this case to the Father's commissioning of him. No one else can claim that kind of divine verification and certification for his ministry or life or mission. So that's one. The second is in verse 19. And uh, the translators have struggled to translate this text. Really, the King James does the very best. The New King James reads, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, uh, as if the experience confirmed the word. It's really the other way around. The King James translates it, we, also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. So even more sure than the experience is the word. 
The very living word of God is even more sure. And he goes on to explain this. Which you would do well is to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first, that no word of prophecy is of any private interpretation or origination. It doesn't originate in the will of a human being as the world religions do. Instead, it originates with God because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit got a hold of the biblical authors and communicated precisely what it was that God wanted communicated. And so we've got the eyewitnesses and then we also have the very word of God itself. And that's how we find a remedy or where we find a remedy to false teaching. Uh, Many bank tellers will tell you that they are trained to spot counterfeit uh, currency by being exposed to real currency so often. And they see the real currency so often that when a counterfeit bill is passed their way, something just goes off in them. Something just isn't right. And that leads them to inspect it and they find it. They're exposed so much to the real thing, they notice the false thing when it arises. And that's how you end up learning truth and growing in truth and spotting the counterfeit. Uh, you, You don't have to master the cults of the world. You don't have to master the world religions to be protected. Expose yourself so often to the truth that when something false arises, something goes off in you and it leads you to inspect it. So that's the remedy for false teaching. But there's a second thing, and that's the reality of false teaching. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says here, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as they, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They do that by covetousness. People that are covetous are very vulnerable to false teaching. Now here's what he's saying. He's alerting them that from among you will arise false teachers. It's not just those coming from the outside. It's those on the inside that arise and produce and uh, advocate false teaching. What he's doing here is that he is doing something very strategic for the Christian church to whom he's writing. Something very, very strategic. And that is he is removing from the arsenal of false teachers, the element of surprise. He's saying it's coming. You need to expect it. You need to anticipate it. So when it does, you're not surprised. Now, you know what happens when you're surprised? Your mind may very well go blank. It may shut down mentally, and that is how some false teachers get others to buy into false doctrine. And to get them into an experience without thinking that will open the door to a false teaching. Let me ask you, have you ever been watching a YouTube clip or uh, some of the Joy Boys on television? And what you'll find is that you'll find in a crowd, they'll get them worked up, usually with the music, to turn their mind off and just let themselves go in the music. And they'll use religious language and worship language. And then sometime or another, the leader of the meeting will throw his hands at the crowd and dozens and dozens of them will fall backwards. Or, as in the case of the Toronto revival, in the case of the Pensacola revival, uh, they'll start barking and jerking. And they'll say that's of the Holy Spirit. What has just happened 
is that they have gone through a process of mass hypnosis. They turn their minds off with worship music that oftentimes is very superficial, not meeting like we get here. And they are encouraged to disengage their mind and just simply open themselves up completely. That is precisely how you hypnotize on a low level an entire crowd and suggest to them what to do. In other words, what Peter's doing here is, is that he's removing the element of surprise and there is never, ever a legitimate time for any serious follower of Christ to turn off their brain. Never, ever, ever turn off your brain. Now, you want your heart and you want your soul to be vibrant and robust and seeking God. You do want that, but you want your mind to be completely focused on Him as well and to be alert. Because what did Jesus say love of God is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. So we're to love God with everything that we've got. Well, that's the... <clears throat> that's the reality of false teachers. But then there's a, there's a third thing, and that is relief from them. It reminds me of the story of Jerry Clower and uh, hunting raccoons one night. And he gets up there, and John gets up there, thinking he's chasing and treeing a, a raccoon. And um, he really has got a lynx, a wildcat, and he starts fighting him up there. And they go on and on, and he cries out, somebody shoot up here amongst us. One of us has got to have some relief. You remember that story? Well, by this time, people in Peter's church have got to have some relief. Now, I want you to notice the line of argument followed here in verses 4 through 9. He points their attention to the past in verses 4 through 8, and then he encourages them in verse 9. Verses 4 through 8, he mentions three experiences in the past where the Lord delivered and then points them to the hope of deliverance in the current time in verse number 9. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, that that may be the fall of angels before the creation of the world when Lucifer fell. It may have been some fall of angels when Jesus came and he sent them into the abyss. Um, and all. It's not real specific, but God did it and therefore delivered the world and his people from their influence. Then he goes on in verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So that's the second experience of God delivering. First is his people, second is Noah. Third, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterwards would live ungodly, and delivered righteous lot, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, a couple of things here. One, there's absolutely no excuse for any Christian to be uh, vulnerable to the temptation of false doctrine and false teaching because God knows how to deliver us. But the second thing here is this. There's an assumption here, and it's the line of reasoning. If he, if he delivered his people with fallen angels, if he delivered Noah and his family in a time of ungodliness, if he delivered Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, then you can expect that God in that day is the same God now. He doesn't change. There is a marvelous constancy to this God. And 
He is the same God today as he was then, or in the words of Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was marvelously compassionate then. Beloved, he's marvelously compassionate now. He, he was marvelously powerful then. He's awesomely powerful now. He is infinitely wise then. He's infinitely wise now. He loved people through deliverance then. He does it now. Jesus hasn't changed. He was known then as Savior. He's known now as Savior. He was known then as truth. He's known now as truth. He doesn't change. And so we can expect him to act in our lives in this day precisely the way he did in olden times. He is the God still of creation and recreation. He is the God of marvelous grace to people like Cain. He is the God who can tear up a tower of Babel and build a new nation through a man like Abraham. He's the kind of God that's not bullied or intimidated by the Pharaohs, but brings down an Egyptian kingdom. He's the God that goes after a giant like Goliath. He is the God who crucifies his son and then raises him from the dead and with him us as well who trust in him. He is the same God he can deliver. So there's a rationale there that we hold on to. And so we go to God and we walk with God with the same expectation. And this is what he's attempting to do in lifting our faith in him. He is constant. He is the same. So there's the remedy and the reality and the relief. But then here is the ruin of false teachers. And I must admit to you, I have a hard time reading this passage. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it is really grievous to bear and to read here in the text. The ruin of false teachers. And there is, in verses 10 to 21, the source of the ruin. And I want to know if maybe you can discern what it is. It's not intellectual. It's not academic. There's a different source for it. And then there's the spiral of ruin. The spiral of ruin in verse number 22. Now read with me beginning in verse number 10 about the source of ruin. He says there, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. They do things that angels wouldn't do. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. You would not believe how common that is in churches. And will utterly perish in their own corruption. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness. And those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes. Carousing in their own deceptions while feasting with you. Having eyes full of adultery. That cannot cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. And are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restraining the madness of a prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, 
For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? The first two phrases in verse 17 are very, very common. Very common among critics of the truth. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So let me ask you something. Do you see any indication here in this text that Peter is worried about their intellectual understanding of the faith? Is that the source of the problem? It's not intellectual. It's moral. It's moral. There you find the words. Corruption. Lust. Deception. Those kinds of things appear here. And that is often more often than many realize, the source of their ruin. It's not that they went off to a German university somewhere and got confused by anti-supernaturalists. That can happen. But it's that their heart was in the corruption first and their body just followed them. That's not to say everyone that goes to a German university is corrupt. not saying that. But what I am saying is, is that the mind ends up following the heart, and it's not the other way around usually. Usually when someone slips from the faith, and some very prominent people have in the last month in the Christian church, usually when that happens, there's something going on in private. Now, I don't want to encourage judgmentalism or suspicion or anything like that, but let that serve as a warning that in private, we've got to walk with God as vigorously as we ever would in public. We must. Or else we make ourselves very, very vulnerable. So I, I'm not really impressed with those who depart from the faith after following Christ for years or decades. I'm not, I'm not impressed, impressed by that. Usually what happens is within a year or two, something comes out that they were privately involved in. I hate to say that. It's heartbreaking. It's hard to read passages like this. Now, I do want to hasten to add that we've covered chapter 1 already. You remember chapter 1? Again, this is no cause for suspicion of people. This is no cause for being critical of people, uh, for engaging in unreasonable, unrighteous judgment. Because verses 5 through uh, 7 of Second Peter 1 is still in the Bible. Okay, so we add to our faith virtue and eventually brotherly love and kindness. And so we maintain that posture and that spirit. But that's the source of ruin. Then there happens to be the spiral, the downward spiral of ruin. Look what it says in verse 22. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know something? That's true. Um, You clean up a pig, they're going back into the mire. You can put as much lipstick and nail polish on that thing as you want to, but the hog is heading back to the slop and heading back to the mire. In other words, people go where their hearts are. People act and behave in a way that is consistent with their nature 
And that's what he's talking about here. And that's why these false teachers do what they do. This is why you are so important in Northeast Georgia. You are. You are extremely important. Do you realize you are the last, most likely, statistically, you are the last person with the gospel between your friends and their death. Very few people will they encounter who care for them with the gospel compassion like you will. Most church people are not going to think of their eternity. The notion of eternity and the notion of biblical salvation has just about disappeared from nearly all of the churches I am aware of, even the conservative ones. You're about the last person. You are extremely important to the lives of your friends. And whereas false teaching is putrefaction and rot and the terms used in verse 22, what you've got to say to your friends is absolutely the most important thing they could ever hear from this point to the very end of eternity. The most important thing. You are important. Therefore, one of the biggest days and important days that will ever happen in the history of Northeast Georgia is September 22nd, Friend Day. That's why we do this. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have a great heart for our friends. I want to pray for them, God, that you would keep them safe from the invasion of false teaching and false